you join me in prayer, please? Oh, Heavenly Father, we exalt Thee. You are a sovereign God, Lord, and we love You. We know that we love You because You first loved us. Lord, thank You for the opportunity to come and worship You today. Uh, thank You for Your Word and the truth of Your Word. And Father, thank You for the Scripture that we're going to be studying this morning. Lord, it's some of the most profound truth in the Bible. And Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would hear it, we would understand it, we would believe it, and we would rely on it every day for the rest of our lives. In your great and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Happy Labor Day weekend. As Joey said, my name's Eric Tucker, and I'm an elder here at Hope, and I'd like to add my welcome to all of you who are here this morning and all of you who are watching online. We're glad that you're here. This is the last sermon in the summer series we've been doing entitled, How to Misuse the Bible and How to Rightly Handle It. We'll start a new series next week entitled, Entrusted, Paul's Last Words from 2 Timothy. So let me ask you this. Are you a joyful person? I ask this because I think that joy is one of the main indicators of whether we know God loves us. Not whether we think God loves us, or not whether we feel that God loves us, but whether we know God loves us, that it's a settled conviction in our heart. Having said that, I don't think many people would describe me as full of joy, maybe full of a lot of other things, but not joy, even my family. But I have joy. By the grace of God, sometimes it just might not show itself to others. Like when I tell my kids that, hey, I have a six pack, it's just way back in the fridge. <laughs> but if we're Christians, we should have joy in our hearts, even if it's quiet joy like mine. Joy in spite of our circumstances, joy that the deepest trouble and greatest grief can't extinguish. Unfortunately, it's exactly our circumstances, the suffering and trials that so many of us have endured or are going through right now that threaten to steal our joy because it makes us doubt God's love for us. Sometimes we don't feel God's presence. He feels a million miles away. And that's when we have to go back to God's word and God's promises again and again, because we walk by faith and not by sight. The kind of sustaining joy that we need comes from an unshakable confidence in God's love for us that allows us to trust his plan for our lives. 
Uh, my hope is that as we talk about this passage this morning, uh, whether it's brand new to you or you've read it a million times, you'll be, it'll be, it will become the foundation for joy that will sustain you throughout your life. Our passage this morning declares the love of God for us in every single verse. It's saturated with it. It's like a tsunami of God's love washing over us. So watch out, you're going to get wet. It's, it's God's splash zone. There's a wonderful children's book that illustrates the kind of confidence that we need to have in God. It's called The Moon is Always Round. The book comes out of the real-life story of author Jonathan Gibson and his three-and-a-half-year-old son, Ben. Ben was fascinated with the moon, and as he and his father looked at the moon every night, Ben saw that the appearance of the moon changed as it went through its phases. Sometimes it looked like a banana, sometimes like an apple slice, or sometimes like a squishy orange. But Jonathan taught his son that despite appearances, the moon is always round. And at the same time, he taught Ben that despite appearances sometimes, God is always good. God's goodness is present even when we can't see it. And in a nutshell, that's what God, through the Apostle Paul, is going to try and teach us this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We'll be looking at verses 28 through 39. This passage is on page 888 of your P Bible. <clears throat> Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. It doesn't get much better than that. Many commentators have called the book of Romans the greatest book in the Bible. And that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible. And that Romans 8.28 is the greatest verse in the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible. Or that at least it contains the greatest promise in the Bible. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, hey, even he can't mess up a sermon on this passage. And I hope you're right. Romans 8.28 is one of the most quoted verses in the Bible, but maybe also one of the misquoted, most misquoted. So let's camp on that for just a second. Most of the time, verses are misquoted because one, the person using the verse fails to get the context right and so get the meaning wrong. The context can come from surrounding verses, other verses in the same chapter or book, or similar verses throughout scripture. And two, they substitute their own opinions about what the verse means rather than finding out what God means. We have to let scripture interpret scripture. So here are some misinterpretations that I've heard about Romans 8.28. First, everything is good. No, everything is not good. There's evil and suffering and tragedy, and none of it is good. Now, God can make these things become good in their effect in our lives, especially if by suffering we are made to be more like Christ. But they're not good in and of themselves. Second, if I love God, he won't make me suffer. Wrong. This verse doesn't mean that God will step in and save you from the impact of suffering just because you're a Christian. That's not the promise. Our circumstances might not get better. God isn't promising better life circumstances, but a better life. Third, God will make things good from my perspective. Not necessarily. The word good does not mean your personal health or wealth or happiness or an easy, comfortable life without suffering or trials. The good is not what we want, but what God makes of all things. And last, God will fix all my messes. No, he won't. You will have to face the consequences of your sin possibly including discipline from God. This verse doesn't mean that we can live any way that we want to and expect God to clean up after us. So this morning, we're going to examine three questions that come out of our passage. What is the promise of Romans 8.28? What is the guarantee of Romans 8.29 and 30? And where is the confident joy in Romans 8, 31 through 39. When I began to prepare this sermon, I was going to limit it to Romans 8, 28. But as I did what I was supposed to do and searched for the context of the verse in surrounding verses, I felt that I had to add verses 29 and 30. Those verses reveal God's sovereign plan of salvation for each one of us and show us why we can be confident that our salvation is sure. If we understand and believe God's sovereignty and salvation, 
then it's not a stretch to understand and believe God's sovereignty in the promise of Romans 8.28. And as I studied further, I had to include the stunning truths that are found in verses 31 through 39, especially verse 12, which John, <laughs> verse 32, putting on the glasses now. Uh, <laughs> whoa! Especially verse 32, which John Piper says may be more important than verse 28. It's a miracle I could see. So on to question one, what is the promise in Romans 8.28? What does it mean? Well, it means that God brings good out of everything that happens to us. He is sovereign. He has a perfect plan for our lives, and he's constantly at work in our lives to make sure his plan prevails. To answer that question more fully, we have to unpack the main components of the promise. But first, who is the promise for? Because many who quote Romans 8.28 leave this part out. The promise is only for believers, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So if you truly love God and God has truly called you, then you're a child of God and entitled to the benefits of this amazing promise. So we'll look at this promise in three sections. All things work together for good. Got it? All things work together for good. Well, see, now I can't see any of you. I can only see this. So were you nodding? Okay, good. <laughs> First, what are all things? Well, surprisingly, all things means all things. Good and bad, easy and hard, happy and sad, prosperity and poverty, health and sickness. The phrase is comprehensive, no qualifications or limits. Now, to be clear, God doesn't cause all things. Some things he causes, the rest he allows. He does not cause evil or sin, but we live in a fallen world where these things abound, and our own sin compounds and complicates these things. Johnny Erickson Tata has been wheelchair-bound as a quadriplegic for over 50 years after an accident in her youth, and she said this when asked about her situation and why God would allow it. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And what he loves is our good. Everything that happens to us, every experience we will ever have, are sovereignly used by God for our good. But how do they work together? Well, the Greek word here for work together is one word called synergio from which we get the word synergy. That's where the working together of various elements produce an effect that is greater than any of the individual elements on their own could produce. That's what God does for us. He makes all things better. And here the verb is present tense, which means that God is continually working all things for our good. He never stops. But what does good mean? Well, God can bring any kind of good he wants to us as he works all things together. But there's an ultimate good that he has in mind here. Look at verse 29. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The word for here is a connector. It means because. So the promise in verse 28 is connected to verse 29. And in verse 29, God reveals the ultimate good that he has for his people to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. What this means is not meant to be a mystery. There's many places in scripture where we're told to put on Christ. And if we do, we should have an increasing desire to live lives that please him, desiring to know him more every day, growing to hate our own sin. And practically, it means seeing more of Christ's character in us Love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, being a servant, and don't forget joy. Many of you know Dan Barbakoff. He's in my small group, and we meet regularly for coffee. I know he feels the same way about God making all things work together for good. It's remarkable. Because if you don't know, in October 2018... Dan was out running when he was hit by a drunk driver about 40 miles an hour. He suffered a broken back, two vertebrae that had to be fused, broken ribs, three brain bleeds, and, and if you want a tongue twister, say brain bleed five times fast. Several strokes, nerve damage to his shoulder, and I could go on and on. Six months after the accident, he found out his vagus nerve was damaged which now prevents him from digesting food and liquids. He's been told that chronologically, he has the body of a 90-year-old man. Obviously, this has negatively affected in big ways and small ways every area of his life. So I asked him how he looks at all this in light of Romans 8.28. He said that in terms of his faith in God and his daily reliance on God, the accident has been one of the greatest blessings he could ever have had. He said, quote, this truly is the best that God has for me, end quote. God is clearly being faithful in making Dan more like Christ. But knowing Dan as I do, I can tell you that God still has his work cut out for him with Dan. But there's progress, definitely progress. Despite the good that God is bringing to his life, Dan and his faithful wife, Melissa, still struggle with the effects of the accident. Every day Dan has is a gift, and living with this uncertainty takes a toll on them. I know there are days when they don't experience the truth of this promise, but they know that doesn't mean the promise isn't true. God is promising this that he takes all of the sorrow, suffering, and evil that comes into our lives and makes it good by his definition. The good may take different forms, but the ultimate good is that we become more like Jesus until the day we're with Jesus. On to question two. What is the guarantee of Romans 8, 29 through 30? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. I looked like there's a slide. There's not a slide. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. These verses introduce us to five great doctrines. Foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. These five doctrines are so closely connected that many commentators have rightly described it as a golden chain of five links, the golden chain of salvation, and God forges every link himself. Entire sermons have been done on each of these doctrines, so I only have time to do a brief summary which is good because my purpose isn't to overwhelm you with doctrine, but to show you that in every single part of your salvation, God is the first mover. He is the one doing the work of salvation in us. First foreknowledge. This doctrine means that God from eternity past fixes a special attention and love on his people, and he loves them in a way that leads to their salvation. One commentator said the word is better translated for loved rather than for knowledge. Next is predestination. Yes, the dreaded P word. Predestination means that God determined our destiny before we were created, and in this sense goes beyond foreknowledge. Foreknowledge means that God fixed his love upon us. It doesn't tell us the eternal destination to which we are appointed. That's what predestination gives us. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ in this life, and that, will work, and that work will be completed when we're with him in heaven. Effectual calling. I added the word effectual here to differentiate this from the general call of the gospel. One kind of calling is, is external to us, general in nature and universal. It's an open invitation to all persons to repent, to turn to Jesus Christ as savior and be saved. But there's another kind of call that we have to hear, one that is internal, specific to us and effectual. Without this call, no one will ever choose Christ as Savior because they're still dead in their trespasses and sin. Jesus has to draw us. Jesus said, no one could come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The second call is personal to you. And when the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, you're given the faith to answer the call and to be justified by your faith. Justification. Justification is the judicial act by which God declares you as a sinful man or woman to be innocent. Not on the basis of your own merit, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for you by dying in your place on the cross. Jesus took your punishment, taking the penalty of your sins upon himself. And those sins have been punished. And all God's wrath for that sin, your sin, has been poured out upon Jesus. And Jesus gets our sin, and then God imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. 
Glorification. This is the last step in God's plan of salvation for us. And it begins either when Christ returns or we arrive at our home in heaven. Instead of being mortals burdened with a sin nature, we'll be transformed into holy, immortal beings with direct and unhindered access to God, to his presence. And we'll enjoy communion with him throughout eternity. Interestingly, in this part of the verse, Paul refers to glorification in the past tense. The only reason I can see for this is that he thinks this final step in our salvation as being so certain that he can refer to it as having already happened. And of course, he does this deliberately to assure us that this is exactly what will happen. Well, I hope I didn't belabor these doctrines, but they're important. Things that matter. Because without these doctrines being true, none of us would be saved. Now, you may be asking yourself, what part do we play in our own salvation? Do we even have to believe? Of course you do. We have to exercise our faith by choosing to accept Christ as Savior. And if we fail to accept him as Savior, we're going to be held responsible for that decision. What, I'm, what Paul is trying to say, though, is that even the faith that allows us to believe is the result of God working in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is of God. And thank God that it is. Because if I could earn my salvation, then I could unearn my salvation. Instead, God has taken our salvation wholly upon himself. And as one commentator said, it is done, quote, wisely, well, and forever, end quote. On to question three. Where is the confident joy in Romans 8, 31 through 39. Before we look more closely at these verses, let me imitate Paul Harvey and tell you the rest of the story about the book, The Moon is Always Round. Remember the dialogue between Jonathan, the author, and his young son, Ben. Jonathan would ask, what shape is the moon? And Ben would answer according to the phase of the moon. Then Jonathan would ask his son, but what shape is the moon really? And Ben would always say, the moon is always round. Then his father would ask, what does that mean? And Ben would say, God is always good. Several months after starting this catechism with his son, Jonathan's wife, who was 39 weeks pregnant at the time, woke up and knew something was wrong. She knew her child was no longer alive Scans confirmed it the next day. Four days later, their daughter Layla was delivered stillborn. Ben went to the hospital to meet her and on the way home asked many questions of his dad. Finally, Jonathan asked Ben, what shape is the moon? And Ben replied, the moon is always round. 
and God is always good. And his father said, Ben, it's just difficult for us to even see the moon right now. But we know, don't we, that the moon is always round and God is always good. Well, verses 31 through 39 are amazing verses. The truth found in each one seems more amazing than the last. And I would urge you that if you're going through times of trial and suffering or times of doubt about God's love, you've got to turn to these verses. They, prov they provide an exclamation point on the truth that God loves us, that his plan for our lives is always good and that we can trust his plan. Let's look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if we just looked at the question, who can be against us, we'd have an answer. We could answer the world, the devil, my own sin nature. These enemies are all against us. But when God is for us, the fight's over. What enemy can stand against God? We are eternally secure in our salvation, and God has promised to make all things work together for good in our lives. Yes, you will still sin. Yes, you will still fail him, but he's not mad at you or disappointed in you or frustrated with you. He's not waiting just to zap you when you mess up. He loves you. He's for you. Verse 32 he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we know God will work all things together for good? Aren't there limits to his grace and mercy? No. And he demonstrated this by giving us Christ. He gave us the most precious thing he could give. So why wouldn't he give us the lesser things promised in this passage? A salvation that we cannot lose, a future home with him when we're glorified, and for living right now the promise that everything that happens to us is turned to good in his hands. Verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Remember the first verse in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if Jesus doesn't condemn us, there's no one who can Verses 35 through 37 say this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No enemies can assail us because God is for us. But what about our circumstances? We have real pain, real suffering. 
And Paul here is warning his readers that persecution and suffering and maybe even martyrdom are coming for them. Paul makes it clear to them and us that none of it can separate us from the love that Christ has already set upon us. That love is eternally secure no matter what comes into our lives. Verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you want proof from Scripture that your salvation is eternally secure, look at these verses. Paul is sure, and he says so. He writes in the first person, and this is really his testimony of the greatness of God's love in our lives. Paul echoes what Jesus said in John 10, 28, about those the Father had given him. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. From eternity past to eternity future, from being chosen to being glorified, we're secure in God's love. This should be our testimony as well. And that should give us joy in our hearts, whether it's quiet or loud. If you're a Christian here this morning, you can never be outside of these promises. They're true for you, even if things are so hard that you don't feel like God is keeping his promises. Or even if we have sinned our way into that hard place, or we're being disciplined by our Heavenly Father, God is still making all things work together for good. It's true that you may not see the good until heaven, but God has to keep his promises His unfailing character demands it. The moon is always round. Well, let me ask the worship team to come up as I I close. Who doesn't want the security of God's love, the security of their salvation, and the security of an eternity in heaven? If you're here this morning and you haven't chosen Christ as your savior, if you want that, you can have it today. If you will humble yourself, recognize you're a sinner in desperate need of a savior and ask Christ to be that savior, you can have these promises right now. And I'll say this, you need them. Because one day you'll have to meet God and be judged by Christ. And how will you be saved on that day if Christ is not your savior? I urge you to come and pray with those who will be up here after the service. In his book, Future Grace, John Piper writes, once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There comes into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown over anymore. 
The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good all the pain and all the pleasure that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're such a great God. Thank you for your word and the truth of your word. Lord, I pray as I did before that you would help us to understand this truth, to believe this truth, and to rely on it every day of our lives. Lord, thank you for Jesus. And I pray that we would love you more each day. In your great and holy name I pray, amen.